Hi friends, welcome to this episode of Doxology Matters, where we desire to help you think deeply about God's Word. You can check us out on the web, bbcyorktown.org. Click down on the menu, Ministries tab, Worship Arts, and you can find our Doxology page, where we have Doxology uh, sessions where you can watch videos of songs that are Christ-centered. We've got about mm, 51 or so out there now. We have Doxology Devotions to where um, you can join in weekly on uh, at 7 o'clock on Zoom. If you click the link, you can email me, and we'll add you to the Zoom link where we're currently studying uh, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. We also have a writing group, Collective, Doxology Collective, where we're designed to write Christ-centered songs for the church. Our last area, well, we actually have two more, our podcast, Doxology Matters, and you can find uh, the link and the player to listen to all the episodes, and you can subscribe at um, Apple Podcast or Spotify to Doxology Matters. And then, soon to come, we have a, um, a tab down there to where we're going to post all of the core songs of what we sing at Bethel. So we're so glad that you have joined us for this episode, and we continue in our study with Pastor Jeff and Pastor Kevin on uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. We're coming to the end of this great text, and today's topic, chapter, is Union with Christ. Union with Christ. I'm very excited to have this conversation. I've spent some time thinking about it and dialoguing with a good friend. And so the first question I want to ask is, why do you think Murray placed this chapter in the order of Salutis, not at the start, but right here? After we've talked about um, perseverance, why do you think he placed it here? Well, Murray makes the point. uh, He says, according to the teaching of Scripture and its broader aspects, this union with Christ underlies every step of the application of redemption. And so it, it's woven throughout every step and every chapter of this. Now, in reality, where else would you put it? You know, perhaps at the beginning, uh, but as Kevin just pointed out, but we don't really have the framework yet to understand the pieces. But but if you don't put it at the beginning, where do you put it? Well, because it touches every aspect of our redemption is intricately and intimately tied to this idea of our union with Christ. Would you say it's really not a part of the golden chain in its logical progression? It's more... No, I would say it is both the governing reality and it belongs in the middle of our uh, Ordo Salutis, not in its presentation as Murray's do it. I think Jeff's exactly right. It either needs to go first or come towards the very end once you have figured out what all these elements are. But I think it belongs in our Order Salutis specifically because it is our union with Christ that gives birth to justification, adoption, and sanctification. Faith doesn't give birth to those things. It's being made alive and anew in Christ. And that's part of what we're going to look at in this podcast. And that's part of what Murray's going after in this chapter. The reality is the union with Christ is a much bigger doctrine than one that can just fit within our presentation of the Ordo Salutis. Instead, we should see the whole of the Ordo Salutis as pertaining as a small piece of this larger element in our union with Christ. And Murray says as much, uh, top of page 172 in my version, 
He says, it is quite apparent that the scripture applies the expression, quote, in Christ, close quote, to much more than the application of redemption. But it is related to the application of redemption. It is our union with Christ that gives birth, as Calvin would call him, to the twin benefits, right, of justification and adoption and sanctification. Why? Because they're born at the same time and for the same reason. Regenerated, repentant faith unites to Christ. And that union with Christ gives birth to these things. So we've studied them. Now we're going to understand what they're encompassed by. Yeah. And that's kind of how Murray's approaching it. Yeah, what a glorious journey it's been. Well, as we think about union with Christ, how would you define, maybe there's a child listening, how would you define what, what is a union? A union is com- a coming together, and it is being in something, hidden in something. We might use the um, uh, the image of when Noah and the animals entered into the ark. They were saved through the flood by the nature of their being in the ark. In the same way, we are saved from the flood of God's wrath by the nature of our being in in Christ. Ooh, Jeff, that's awesome. Did you think about sharing that prior or did that just come no, to you? Somebody smarter than me came up with that image. <laughs> that is really, really good. It's also something that is a normal part of our affairs. We just don't often talk about it that way. A marriage is a union. A contract is a union. A covenant is, is a union of, of kinds. Uh, and so we deal with union, but we don't deal with it in our American culture, 21st century, the same way the Bible does. And I appreciate Murray taking us back into how the Bible thinks about and uses this idea of, of being united to Christ. Kind of ironic that we in the United States of America don't talk as much about union as perhaps we ought. <laughs> At least not in a biblical sense. Yeah. Those are a couple of different uh, directions. Yeah. We can go a lot of ways. <laughs> Maybe it's a different podcast. How is union with Christ central in the doctrine of salvation? Murray says so. How he, is it? He does. Well, and I think it was helpful what Kevin said earlier. There's a degree in which it fits into the middle of the chain, right? If we think of the order salutis, the order of our salvation is the golden chain, some theologians called it. Um, you know, our union with Christ is at the center of it. It's at the middle of it. It, it gives uh, uh, birth to the other aspects of it. Another way, perhaps, to describe the image is that... Um, if salvation is a golden chain, union with Christ is perhaps the metal out of which the chain is made. Good. I like that. Um, it, it's woven into each and every one of them. Uh, now, as Murray pointed out, there's more to it, and the biblical authors use that phrase, union with Christ, to describe other things as well. Um, but it, it, it is particularly uh, important and, and involved in these aspects. Well, that's really beautiful. I'll be very candid. Uh, thinking about union with Christ, this is the first time that I have thought about union with Christ when I read this chapter. Uh, maybe I thought about the aspects of it, but as far as crystallizing it down, that we're united with Christ and thinking about where our union is, especially that chart you just showed me prior to the podcast taping, this, this is a new uh, thought 
stretching me. Have you have you felt that way? I, I have felt that way in almost every chapter. Yeah. Right? Murray walks us through something like uh, um, effectual calling, and I'm like, I've never thought of it that way. That's so helpful. Each chapter in this book is is a gift in that way. Yeah. In many ways, it's a master class in systematic theology. It, systematic theology can be overvalued. Even, even a systematician like me would say that. But I think it's often undervalued because we think, well, I just want to know what the Bible says. And I'm like, okay, but how do you summarize what the Bible says? Like That's the brilliance of a systematic approach is that you're trying to capture everything that the Bible says without adding to it or neglecting and taking away from it, right? Those are the two failures. And how do we do that in a way that's understandable, in a way that makes sense? And so Murray's giving us a master class in that. And one of the ways you can see that, bottom of page 180 in, in my version, John, John Murray writes this. He says, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. I think this is what you were alluding to, Jeff, when you said, like kind of the metal is made out of union with Christ. I like that imagery, right? So Murray says, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, all to which the people of God have been predestined in the eternal election of God. All that has been secured and procured for them in the once for all accomplishment of redemption all of which they become the actual partakers in the application of redemption and all that by God's grace they will become in the state of consummated bliss is embraced, that's all one thought to him, is embraced within the compass of union and communion with Christ. And so basically what he's saying is that our union with Christ began before there was time, and ends never. Our application of salvation comes between those two great markers. <laughs> Before the foundation of the world and never for the, for the believer. And there's a point, an alpha point of faith, where you are made alive. You are renewed in the whole self. That's the alpha point of faith. That's the beginning of your salvation and your Christian making you a Christian. But you were united to Christ long before that, in a sense, in a facet. And that's kind of, you know, when I think about our union with Christ, I usually think about it in three facets. So the first is that we have an eternal union with Christ, that, that there's an origin element in the Father's decreeing us saved, that we have the promise of redemption before the foundation of the world. And that I call our eternal union. And I think, Kevin, before you move on to the yeah. second point, I think that's important for the believer to meditate on. Good. Yeah. Your, your faith, yes, it had an alpha point in your experience of it, but you have an eternal union with Christ. There are moments, days and seasons, in which I forget that. But when I remember it, it's like the the you know the fuel of my faith is just that the, you know the 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 match is struck. Um, so believer, I or listener, I would encourage you, but remember of that eternal union with Christ. Well, I think he unites us with Christ. Why? It's out of the abundance of his love, right? It's the same question asked for in Deuteronomy seven. 
uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Moses is essentially saying, hey, Israel, why do you think God loves you? And you get a, a small list of why he doesn't. Not meaning he doesn't love you, meaning it's not based on these things. So it's not based on your size. It's not based on your awesomeness. Let's be honest. You're kind of a fumbly, terrible group of people grumbling at all of my grace, you know. Uh, and and why, does, why did God choose Israel in the Old Testament? Because he loved them. Why does God love you? Because he determined to love you. He chose to. And, and that's true for the believer. That's the same for us. Why did God elect you? Because it pleased him to do so. Have you heard the Gerhardus Voss quote? I believe I'm saying this right. How do you know that God will never stop loving you? And I think it's because he never started. Yeah, he never began. Never began, yeah. Yeah. There, there is a facet in the mind of God that he has always united you to Christ. It hasn't happened in time and space, but your union with Christ in that ancestry, the root of that union, predates time or space or matter. You are that loved. You are that chosen. Before there's time, space, or matter, you were in Christ. And and that's the breadth of kind of this presentation. You can see this best in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. I mean, you see it in lots of places, but I think it's summarized so well there. God chose us in him, that is union with Christ. And and listener, when you're reading your Bible and you see in Christ or in him or in Christ Jesus, it's talking about the doctrine of union with Christ. That's what it's talking about. Uh, you can even write that in a notation on the side of your Bible if you do that. Are you going to find that in a systematic text, union with Christ? Oh, no. Absolutely. Like a good one. <laughs> you, yeah. It's straight out of Calvin. I mean, it's not that it's Calvinistic. I mean, Calvin's getting it from Augustine, who's getting it from Paul. I mean, this it's this language, it's this way of understanding what's happening in the in the Greek New Testament. But you have God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I don't know how to say that differently. <laughs> you have ancestry to union with Christ. So it's not just that it predates your life. It predates, wait for it, life. You are loved. Okay, second. The second union, the way that the New Testament talks about our union with Christ, is redemptive union. And, and when I say that, what I mean is, or what Murray means is, what your Bible means, let me say it that way. What your Bible means is that there is a very real sense that Jesus died for you. You see this refrain in the New Testament that he did this for our sins. He gave him, this is Galatians 1.4, he gave himself for our sins. Or in 1 Corinthians 15.3, one of the early creeds of the church that Paul references in 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died. Why? For our sins. And so in the crucifixion and the heinousness of that crucifixion, it's our sin. Our sin is united to him in that act of atonement. He is atoning for us. It's not a blank check for the whole world. It's a blank check with our allotted account for it. We are 
being a paid for our sin on the cross. Isn't there some sort of? Isn't there like a an exchange that's happening there? Sure. His so, imputed righteousness and our sin debt. Yeah. So sin. that's where he bears our sin. He's he's the theological term there is expiation. He's expiating our sin. He's removing our sin. He's removing our shame. So the justification is much more the propitiation where he's enduring the wrath and paying the penalty. But you see both of those happening in like Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement. I can get off track. Biblically, it's, it's there. And, and what we're saying is that we have this historical union with the event of the cross, the act of the cross. It, it, and it, really, it's our historical union with incarnation to Pentecost, right? Because they're one-time non-renewable events. They're one-time non-renewable events. The Son of Man is never coming again to deal with sin. He's coming again to take his people home. But he doesn't have to deal with sin anymore. That's Hebrews 9, 10. So what does it mean? It means that Jesus died for us. So we have that union with him in the historical act of crucifixion. So Colossians 2, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. So again, just kind of, I, I, no, I, I think it's, I think it's important that we kind of settle into that. And remember when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. He, he couldn't have made an end to my sin if there's no union with him. Uh, listener note that that what Jeff just quoted is before the throne of God above. You can find that song at sovereigngracemusic.org. Yep, great. I mean, great encouragement to our faith. So, so we've got this eternal union in which we can remember. Well, before time, before life was in Christ, we've got this um, historical union uh, with the, the the person and the work of of Christ. I mean, these are these are soul strengthening truths. So, when do we become partakers? So both of those events, I think we would agree, happened before us, right? We're born as matter and time and space, body and soul. I'm a person. There's a point in my life where I become a believer. I wasn't born justified, right? Ephesians 2 is pretty clear. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And then Jesus did something by sending the Spirit, third member of the Trinity, to Awaken me to call me like Lazarus out of the grave. John 11. I was made alive. And then you'll see this word in uh, Ephesians 2. And it, it should be repeated three times. because repeated this way at the beginning of three Greek words that Paul invents in Ephesians 2. I don't know if you knew that Paul invented words to express faithful things, but he did. And so... The scripture could easily read in our culture, together I was raised, together seated with Christ. Like the the emphasis is on the together, and that together is teaching union with Christ. Isn't that, um, I remember you talking to me about that when I was writing that hymn Yeah, for the fourth verse. Yes, so here it is. I'll, re- I'll read you the text because I think it's worth it. Uh, Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So born dead in our trespasses. And then God does something. He made us alive together with Christ. 
together with Christ. Paul's inventing this word here. Together, meaning union with Christ. He, he, he made, this is a living union. This is how theologians the last few hundred centuries, the last few hundred years have talked about this. They say, we're made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's verse 5. Here's verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we say with him, it sounds like mom's taking us to the mall. Right? Like we're just kind of tagging along. No, 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 no. This is union language. This is the doctrine of being made alive together with Christ, seated together, right? That's raised together. And so this is exactly what Paul's teaching about the doctrine of union with Christ. It's just kind of harder to express. So what are we saying? What we're saying is that there is a point where that spirit worked faith enters in. There's that moment, ordo salutis, where we are regenerated, and that regeneration is then going to give birth to God granting us repentance, giving us faith, which is also in Ephesians 2. We are united to Christ, and that, together with Christ, gives birth to justification, adoption, and sanctification. And that's kind of Murray's progression here. And so when we think about these three facets, we have eternal union, we have historical union, and then we have living union. And that living union is what will persevere until we die. And that's the next chapter, right? We're going to talk about glorification. But I'll give you a preview. In our glorification, our living faith endures forever. So our union with Christ began before there was ever and ends never. That's how united to Christ the New Testament talks about it. Whoa. Mind blown. Yep. That is, it's such a helpful to put some handles on some really big ideas. Eternal union with Christ, historical union with Christ, living union with Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any final thought you have about this chapter? I would encourage the listener to remember these truths as um, uh, as you go through life. Uh, let let these truths be fuel on the fire of your faith and an encouragement to your soul that that you really were um, in Christ before the foundation of the world. You have an eternal union with Christ. You really do have a historical union with Christ. He really did cancel the record of your debt, and you do and have an active and living union with Christ. So I would encourage the listener to just dive into these truths uh, to encourage their faith. Any uh, additional resources, books that you would recommend on this? John Murray's got a great book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I would <laughs> I encourage you to, to finish this and then start rereading it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there are devotional tools that will help you get a handle on this, something like the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter and Larger Catechisms. Uh, they sound like nerdy, bookwormy type things, question and answer responses and whatever, but they're just tools that summarize by a group of systematic theologians and biblical theologians what does the Bible teach on any given subject on, on these issues. And so you can kind of walk your way through them. I'm going to highlight one of them in the next section, I imagine. Did y'all grow up doing a catechism? Nah, not at all. I grew up in the Episcopal Church in New England. Should have said Universalist Unitarian on the door. 
Did you catechize or do catechism with your kids? You did. How many? The longer or the shorter or the... (laughs) So it used to be, back in the day, pre-electricity, that you would do the shorter catechism for your kids and the larger catechism for grown-ups. I think because of the biblical illiteracy and unfamiliarity, the shorter catechism becomes for grown-ups. And so we needed something for kids. So there are kind of a a children's catechism. My church gives them out to every family in our church uh, with young kids. Uh, In this Christmas season, my wife buys a book on behalf of the church for all the kids in the church to get them thinking Christianly, right? It's that great Tolkien and C.S. Lewis conversation around what does a holy imagination look like? And so my wife embodies that question and tries to find them a book. But along with that comes a children's catechism. And I love it. I think it's one of the most helpful tools you can ever have to parent young kids. Um, Can an adult do catechism? Oh, absolutely. It's just question and answer, right? Like question, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at their death? Like, I bet now that I've read that out loud, you are thinking about that and wondering, what does the Bible say are the benefits, right? Like, it's totally that way. And they're giving you summary answers. And if you have a, a more robust version, there are Bible references to every clause in the confession, every clause in the catechism. So they, they literally can't make an assumption without tying it to a place in Scripture that kind of proves their point of why they say it this way. How many questions are in the larger catechism? Thanks for that. Uh, give me a second and I'll look. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and this is where you edit it out, Keith, because I'm going to keep talking and talking and talking. Here you go. 196 in the oh, larger. Wow. 196 questions in the larger catechism. The shorter has, to no surprise, 107. There's one more thing I want to say. The Westminster Confession was written in the 1600s, and there are modern translations of it. So, but sometimes you can get caught on the language. That's one of the reasons why the guys at Redeemer up in New York City, Tim Keller and, and his friends in ministry, released a new city catechism. And I find it richly rewarding, especially with teens, to be able to go after this question and answer and to use it as a, a springboard into what does the Bible say. And so I do it with my daughters. Um, I've done it with kids in our church and the New City Catechism is a pretty good tool. Somebody, TGC or somebody, gave it away at one of their more recent conferences. I believe there's an album as well, musical yeah. album, where the question and answers are in a, a, a music format. Oh, I'll have yeah, to check that out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, had, Cal- had Calvin passed away um, before the— Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it, the reason we call him the Westminster Standards is, is the King of England called for the creation of that set of documents in addition to some others. So it's the roots of Calvinism as it pertained to largely Scotland and British uh, resident scholars, theologians. I can't remember the uh, birth and death dates of Calvin. Was he alive in the 1600s at all? I don't recall. I don't know. So for the uh, for the listener that might think, well, I don't, you know, confessions and catechisms, I'm not sure. Just a starting place, Ephesians. Start with Ephesians, and every time you read the phrase in him or in Christ, circle it or underline it or whatever is, take a note, and you'll begin to grasp a biblical understanding of union with Christ. Yeah, excellent. 
Well, thank you so much for listening.